Do you guys think that next line of the song was going to be played at church? <laughs> maybe, maybe next week. Uh, welcome to David Week One. Before we dive into David, um, I want to let you guys know I've, I've had quite a few meetings this week, meetings with staff, meetings with members of our church, um, and I realized once again that life is messy, life is hard. And uh, here at Prodigal, we don't have all the answers, but we are going to be there for you, and we're going to be praying for you. And these past two weeks, our staff and prayer team have been praying for specific people in our church. We were praying for a young family in our church where their, their four-month-old just had major surgery this past Wednesday. Uh, uh, and then we were praying for another couple in our church that are expecting a child, and they had received some concerning uh, tests, uh, news about their baby, and they asked the church to pray for them, and we have. And as they await, awaited their test results, we did pray. And as much as I love our Sunday morning worship services— this is not the core of our church. Prodigal church is, 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 is best seen in the way that we're there for each other and that we are uh, loving each other through the messiness of life. That is where prodigal church is seen um, most. And just this week, I was meeting with Brittany and someone else from our church, and Brittany, our children's pastor, and she was talking about you, and she said this about our church. I, we want you to know that we want to know. And I go, Brittany, that's so great. That's so true. That's exactly how we feel. We want you to know that we want to know about all the messiness that you have going on in your life. And we want to be there for you. We want to pray for you. And we don't want to judge you. We just want to love you. And that's what the church is all about. And uh, we want you to know that we want to know. And this is why we do small groups. We believe that the Christian life is better lived together and that attending a small group, uh, we grow closer to Jesus, we are closer to each other. Uh, maybe, maybe going to a small group is, does more spiritual good for your soul than a Sunday morning worship experience. We want you to come here. We want you to invite people to come here. But we really think that life is, the Christian life is lived predominantly outside of a Sunday morning worship experience. That's where the real magic happens. So you can sign up online for a small group um, at our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com, or on your way out, we've got a pop-up kiosk out there. Small groups available for women's groups, men's groups, co-ed groups, couples groups. It's going to be great. So we want to encourage you to do that, to think about that. My wife and I are hosting a, one on Tuesday nights, and it's for uh, married couples, and uh, we're going through this book called Love to Stay, and it's, it's going to be really, really great. So this morning we start a brand new series on the life of King David. Historian Baruch Halpern said this about him. David is the first human being in world literature. What he's saying is that there's so much bad about David that is kept in the Bible, and there's so much good. That's what humans are, right? We're great and we're bad. That's who we are. Uh, and in the time of King David, when someone wrote a narrative about someone, it was about a god, right? It was about a titan. It was about a superhero. And David is certainly none of those things. Uh, there's good and bad. Abram Sakar said this about King David. He played exquisitely. He fought heroically. He loved titanically. Yet he was a profoundly simple being, cheerful, sad, selfish, generous, centering one moment, repenting the next, the most human of characters in the Bible. This is who we're looking at for the next six weeks. 
In the Old Testament alone, David's name is mentioned over a thousand times. That's more than Abraham. That's more than Moses. Half of the Psalms are ascribed to him. And actually, no other character in the Bible has more written about him than David. There's more about David than there is about Jesus. 66 chapters are dedicated to him. There are 59 references to him in the New Testament. We see so much of King David in us, and we see so much of us in King David. And his story starts with his great-grandmother, Ruth. There's a book in the Bible named after her. It tells her story. She was a Moabite woman who chose to be among the people of God, chose to become an Israelite by staying loyal to her uh, widowed mother-in-law. She was held in such high regard that she became, you know, the great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history. And so to kind of start us out for this series, I'd like to kind of give a brief overview of David's life and in his time frame and where he existed and where, what land he was in, all that kind of a thing, just so that when we tell all these stories over the next several weeks, we can kind of pinpoint where they may take place. And so uh, it'll be super helpful for us. Most of David's story is found in First and Second Samuel. It's also found in Chronicles. And Chronicles is, is a book that was written a little bit later, and it retells the story, but it leaves out certain parts. A lot of David's big-time mistakes are left out in Chronicles. One Jewish rabbi said that, in other words, Chronicles is Samuel made boring, okay? There are certain episodes that are just completely removed from the, chronicle, uh, the chronicler's telling. One atheist scholar said this, David must have actually existed, and most of it must be true, because no people would deliberately invent a national hero so deeply flawed. David was a shepherd in Bethlehem around 1000 B.C., he was the youngest of eight sons. He grew up with seven older brothers. He was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. More on that later. And while he was still a shepherd. So he was anointed king, but he was not appointed till much later. Uh, he was anointed as a young man, but he wouldn't be king until uh, his mid-20s. So he's anointed, but nothing in his life changes. He kind of goes back to shepherding. Then one day, uh, he's bringing food to the battlefield to feed his older brothers and there's an army on the other side with a giant named Goliath, right? More on that story next week. Uh, it's a lot more than just a children's tale, and it was, it, we encourage you to come back. It's going to be a great, great time next, next Sunday. And so then he, he goes viral, right? He beats Goliath, Goliath, he slays Goliath, and then everybody starts singing songs about him. Like, he goes viral as you can in 1000 BC. Everybody's talking about David. David's so mighty. He, would, he slays thousands of bad guys. Saul, he slays hundreds of bad guys. And David begins to serve in Saul's um, palace, and he plays the lyre. The lyre, it's, it's like, a, like a harp instrument. And Saul has this love-hate relationship with David. And most of the time, it's hate. Sometimes it's love. Very often, it's, it, it's hate. David's playing the instrument one time, and, and Saul just gets just so jealous that he grabs a javelin and chucks it at David and hits, kind of lands in the wall behind him. And David's like, I should probably get out of here. And then he flees, and he's fleeing Saul for a long time. Uh, and... Saul is very, very jelly of Dave. Eventually, Saul and his son Jonathan die in battle, and David becomes king of all of Israel. And as king, he makes some really great decisions and increases the territory of Israel. 
and he makes some really bad decisions that leads to the loss of uh, life, not only for his nation, but also for his family. To put it lightly, there's some family drama that takes place in First and Second Samuel. There's sexual assault, there's murder, betrayal, and tears. Lots of tears. David was a crier, okay? Uh, passionate man. Jonathan Kirsch says this about David. King David is a symbol of the complexity and ambiguity of human experience itself. And we're going to dive into that for the next six weeks. The complexity and ambiguity of the human experience itself. Um, and in the end, he's seen as the greatest king in Israel's history. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 16. It's where we'll be today. There's no way throughout the six weeks of the series that we're going to be able to look at every story in the life of David. Like I said, there's just a massive amount of literature written about him in the Bible. So we want to encourage you kind of throughout this season of small groups in this fall season to crack open your Bible and check out some of the stories of David, kind of fill in some of the gaps that we're not able to do on Sunday mornings. But we'll start at 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says this in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So first, Saul is now king. He's the first king of Israel, and he's made a bunch of bad decisions. And so God says, I'm done with Saul. He is no longer going to be king. He still is king. But he will eventually be no longer. God has chosen someone else. So he tells the prophet Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel is the prophet uh, of God and Saul's the rejected king. And if Saul hears that Samuel's going to Bethlehem to anoint the next king, Saul's going to get all fired up, right? Saul's going to kill him. So Samuel says to God, how can I do what you say? How can I go and anoint the next king? Because Saul's going to kill me. And then God says, lie. God tells Samuel to lie. Say that you're going to offer a sacrifice. Don't tell him what you're really doing. Lie. It was a lie to preserve a life, but it was a, it was a lie nonetheless. It, it's worth noting that David, in his anointing, is surrounded in a cloud of mild deception. And does he, at this moment, learn to adopt the self-protective shading of the truth from the prophet that actually gives him his start? In this shading of the truth, this lying, we're going to see throughout the life of David. Now, uh, we're going to have some fun here with this next part of the story. Look at verse 4. It says this. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So, the first contestant to be the new king of Israel, let's hear it for the oldest son, Eliab. Eliab, where are you at? Eliab. There he is. There he is. Come on up, Eliab. Eliab means God, my father. Now, his looks just scream king, okay? 
He's six foot six, and he is tore up from the floor up, ladies and gentlemen. This must be the Lord's anointed. Give it up for Eliab. But the Bible says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Sorry, Eliab. Have a great one. Give it up for Eliab, ladies and gentlemen. What a great line. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. More on that later. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, the next contestant to be the new king of Israel. Let's hear it for the second oldest son, Abinadab. Come on up, Abinadab. There he is. There he is. <laughs> Abinadab was second in line for his father's inheritance, but he was last in line when they were passing out first names. Abinadab sounds like a new dance move, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Abinadab is the strongest of all the sons. If you thought Eliab was strong, you haven't met this guy. He bench presses more than you own. And uh, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Ooh, that's got to hurt. Let's hear it for Abinadab, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. So it's not Eliab. It's not Abinadab. Verse 9, Jesse then had Shema pass by. Let's give it up for Shema. Shema, come on up here. Where are you at, Shema? There he is. There he is. Shema's mother is in the crowd today, and so let's say hi to Shemama. Shemama's in the back. Thank you for being here. Uh, Sh Shema's name means to hear or to understand. He is the smartest of Jesse's sons. He's the bookworm of the family. Don't ask him if he's seen the movie because you know he's going to tell you the book was better. Give it up for Shema, ladies and gentlemen. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Verse 9, Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. I am so sorry. Go cry to your Shemama. Give it up for Shema, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Seven of Jesse's sons are paraded in front of the prophet Samuel, yet none of them are the Lord's choice to become king. So Samuel is frustrated. God told him one of Jesse's kids is going to be king. Go there to anoint him. Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for David. David, where are you at, David? Come on up, David. Give it up for David right there, ladies and gentlemen. David out in the field. He's fighting off lions to save those lambs. This is King David right here. David means beloved. And this is what the Bible says, verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health. He had a fine appearance and handsome features. Amen, right? Amen. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Give it up for King David, ladies and gentlemen. Great job, David. Let's head that way. The most handsome of them all. It's also my nephew, Carlo, so I'm a little bit biased. It says Samuel took the horn of oil, not a flask of oil like he did for Saul. 
And Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that at this moment, Samuel leans forward and whispers to David, you are now the king of Israel. Just a boy. Uh, we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about this boy. He grows up to be a great man. Uh, it's a great story, this anointing of King David. Uh, I find it so interesting that it all went down this way. Like, just think of what must have been going on in Samuel's mind. Right? Samuel's like, we don't have to do it this way. <laughs> like, God could have said the next king of Israel is the son that's out in the field. Or he could have said, it's David of Jesse. God knew who Samuel was to anoint. Why didn't he just say, it's that one over in the field? God didn't have to parade seven people in front of him and then say no to each and every one of them. It's as if God is saying, I don't just want you to see what I'm saying yes to. I also want you to see what I'm saying no to. And I'm saying no to appearance. And I'm saying no to status. And I'm saying no to the most experienced. He's retraining Samuel's eyes to see what really matters. Our eyes need to be retrained as well. It's as if God is saying, yes, I want you to go there and anoint the king, but don't you dare think that that's all you're there for. I've got some lessons along the way for you. God is sharpening the prophet by revealing that even he, the man of God, looks at the outward appearance. Even the prophet judges a book by its cover. Notice how confident Samuel was when he saw Eliab, right? The tall one. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. That's got to be... One look at Joel, and it's like, that's it. That's our king. There is something more than the outward appearance. Uh, my son Dex... Uh, is in kindergarten now, and every Thursday is library day. So the whole class walks to the library, they pick out a book, and they bring it back to class, and they get to read it all week long. And, and he loves it, loves picking out a new book. You know he's not opening up the middle page, looking at the author and their background. He's not flipping it to the back to find out what the book's about. He looks at that cover, he grabs it, and he's determined, I'm going to like it because it looks good. We do this all the time. We do it with people. We do it with things. We do it with, what, with possessions that people have. We think because they have that, they have it together. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In what ways have you judged a book by its cover? In judgment, it's, a, it's that sneaky sin. Most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. Like, picture yourself, like, in a thought experiment, like you're at the mall, okay? You're at fashion fair. And the person you're shopping with goes into some boutique store and you say, I'm just going to sit down and drink my Orange Julius. So you sit down on a bench, you drink your Orange Julius, and uh, you, you're sitting there and what do you start doing? You start doing this very fun activity called people watching, right? You're laughing because you do it. If you're not familiar with this activity, it's just as fun as it sounds, okay? You watch people go by, but that's not all, okay? And people watching, you're also commenting on them in your mind as they walk by. You see that one couple, oh sweet, what a sweet couple. They have such a glow about them. I, I, surely they must know Jesus. And then a guy in a tank top walks by and you're like, okay, 
okay, Mr. Muscles, we get it. You're very into yourself. What a pathetic way to get attention. Oh, what a sweet smile that lady has. Oh, that guy. Ooh, I can't believe you voted for that candidate. And you're wearing this shirt because you're proud of it. Oh. Oh, oh, look at that spiritual guy over there holding a Bible, walking around. I bet he's just walking around judging everybody he sees. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But inside my head, there is a gossip column that is just running all the time. A commentary on the life of every person that walks by. And Jesus says we must wake up to our thoughts. Wake up to our thoughts. You see, we usually aren't aware of our thoughts. We often run on autopilot. In the process of letting God into our thoughts, he helps me come to the realization that what I'm doing, this judging, can be sinful activity. Why? It's because I'm feeding off the contrast, right? Well, I may like attracting attention to myself. At least I'm not tank top guy. Well, I might indulge my sweet tooth a little. I'm not as heavy as that person over there. And the contrast is actually making me feel a little bit better about, about myself. Judgment is ascribing worth to ourselves at the cost of others. We're judging a book by its cover. We do this all the time. And we should be different. As followers of Jesus, we must be different. We must be different. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One of my favorite movies uh, came out about sometime when I was in college. It's called The Replacements. It's Keanu Reeves is in it. And the NFL goes on strike, so they get these replacement players. And the reason I like this movie so much is because I feel like someday that's going to happen to me. Like, they'll go, we, we want that. Remember that running back in 1999 from Buchanan High School who's almost 40 now? I think he's still got it. Um, and so I think this is my life. And so Keanu Reeves goes and plays on, on an NFL team with all these replacement players. And uh, uh, eventually, the last game of the season, they're going to the playoffs. Uh, the, the head quarterback on that team crosses the picket line, and he ends up playing. So Keanu Reeves is just watching the game from a boat, and they get destroyed. At halftime, the coach is walking off the field, and he's so upset that, that his team is getting rocked. They're going to have no chance. They're going to lose the game. And the, inter the reporter's interviewing him as he's walking into the halftime to give a speech. And this is what, it, what, this is what the clip is right here. good. That's good. Heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. It's a scripture we should memorize and recite it daily because we need to hear it again and again. And if we repeat it enough, maybe we'll start believing it and maybe we'll start living it. It's fascinating that Jesse did not feel David was worthy of an invitation to witness this event. That even Jesse, his father, thought, well, it's not Dave. Samuel, the prophet coming to town, this was a big deal. It's not every day the prophet of God comes to your house, to your town. David doesn't get an invite. He's not worthy. God delights in using the insignificant. God delights in using the insignificant. See, in the Jewish mind, seven is the perfect number. Eight is an afterthought. 
David was the eighth son. This is the pattern we see throughout the Bible. God is always passing over the qualified people to use the insignificant. He's always passing over the people that make the most sense in order to use the nobody. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Yes, yes. All kinds of yes to that. So why David? Well, because of his heart. Miles and miles of heart. Uh, he was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. The rabbis say that when God chooses a leader, God looks to see how he tends sheep. In other words, will this person be good to the powerless? Will, be, will this person be good to the insignificant? Does he or she have a compassionate, caring heart? Some of us have been asking for increase, and God is asking us, for us to be faithful where we are. Uh, see, David was faithful in the field, faithful in the familiar, faithful when forgotten. He was faithful in all those situations. He was faithful in the field. He did a great job taking care of those sheep. The text tells us later on that but right before he fights Goliath, he says, I've killed lions to protect the sheep. Uh, I've killed bears. Uh, he was faithful in the field. He did the job no one really wanted, and he did it well. Then he was faithful in the familiar. It was something he had to do all the time. And he was faithful when he was forgotten. When he was insignificant enough not to get the invite to the party where the next king's going to be anointed at his house to witness his own brothers. He was insignificant. He was still faithful. What field has God placed you in that he wants you to be faithful in? God is asking you to be faithful in the field that he has placed you. And it might not be the biggest field that you desire. It might not be in the home, right, or the situation that you desire. But God has placed you somewhere for such time as this. Can you be faithful there? And then leave it up to God what happens next. Some of us are missing out on the be God's best for us right now in the situation we're in because we're dreaming about then in the future. This is something as a pastor that, that we could struggle with, right? God, we need to get a building because we're here so early on Sundays to, to set up. We need to get a building. And I could lose myself in dreaming of what's going to be in the future or what could be in the future. All the while, God is doing miracles right before me and I'm missing it. God has you here today in your home, at your job, in this city, in this nation, for such a time as this. Be faithful in the field God's placed you. Find that there's joy in the place God places you. I invite knowing the band to come up. Uh, some of us uh, have felt like we've been overlooked because maybe we don't have the striking features that the next king should have. And God says, I made you the way I made you for a reason. You're good as is. We don't find our identity in what people say about us. We find our identity in Christ as his kids. You are a daughter of the king.
Live into that reality. You are a child of God. Live in that reality. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't ask to get your worth from what you do or what people say about you. Get your worth from Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, God, that you delight in using the insignificant. And so, God, open up our eyes to do that as well. Open up our eyes to see the heart, not the outside. God, uh, reveal to us the ways in which we need to repent by judging from judging books by their covers. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. So, Father, give us more heart. Give us your heart. We need you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close this song together?